but it's it's really good. I know that I've shaved years and probably like at least 15 years, maybe two decades off of the learning curve of my my building because of who I've had a chance to work with and work up to their standards. Um, so if that's a possibility for you, go take a course, go work with somebody. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Dode Mode podcast. On today's episode, I'm honored and privileged to introduce Jackson Corey, who is an artist and a builder and a creator. And today he's going to talk about his experiences building musical instruments. I learned a lot from our chat, and I hope you do too. Jackson is a fascinating guy to talk to. So without further ado, let's jump right into this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Jackson. It's great to have you on. Good to be here, Dorian. Thank you. Absolutely. So to get us started, can you give me a little history on yourself? Uh, yeah, grew up in grew up in Alberta, um, grew up way out in the mountains, and then ended up moving more into central uh, Alberta uh, later on. Um, grew up, ended up doing a lot of music growing up, and uh, that kind of led me in a bunch of different places and my brother and I would play uh, and then that led me to where I'm at now which is in the, the instrument world awesome and when you say instrument world you're talking about specifically building instruments right that's right yeah I've spent the last um uh, pretty much decade of my life doing just instrument building and repair Awesome. Can you talk me through what um, what got you into the the art or the science of building and repairing instruments? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my brother and I, we were doing music pretty much full time uh, from when I was about, uh, I don't know, eight, eight or ten right up through um through high school, basically, I was able to fund a bunch of my education playing music. Um, and so I think when I was about eight or so, I heard a song by a Canadian band called Tanglefoot. Uh, and it was about a, a violin maker. And that sort of tweaked the idea. I remember thinking at the time that I'd like to like to build violins. Um, then a few things inspired. I was thinking through this. I, I ended up reading a book called the maker movement manifesto by a guy who's a ceo of one of the major maker spaces in the states um and his premise was just how valuable it is basically to have a society where people can make things and i know that intrigued me at the time and that was that would have been a few years before i kind of did what i did which was i basically dropped out of high school in one sense i was homeschooled my whole my whole uh, school career for the most part um, so to say I dropped out of high school is a bit of an exaggeration, but I ended up switching kind of focus tracks. And I went and did a diploma program at a post-secondary in Saskatchewan for guitar building. That was when I was 15. And so I finished that up. Uh, that was a short, shortish program. And I came out with, with a finished guitar that I ended up, I played that on the road for five years. And then when I came out of that program, I went back and talked to a fellow that I knew from the music world who was a violin bow maker. And I ended up apprenticing with him for a year. 
and I got to, to learn a bunch about that and, uh, you know, develop my skills and develop my learning in how that world works. Then when I finished up with him a year later, I ended up, he introduced me to some folks uh, that he'd been working for. And I ended up getting into the violin restoration world for about six years. Um, and I worked in a couple of different shops and was really lucky to learn from some of the folks I learned from very, you know, very well-trained, very skilled people got to learn from some, some great folks. Uh, and then sort of the COVID restrictions shut down the shop that I was working in at the time. And I came up here to where I'm at now. And I did a course with Sergei de Jung, who was uh, Larve's first apprentice. So big, um, sort of a big name in the Canadian school of guitar making uh, with a, a very solid lineage directly down there. Uh, and I did that course and then I was back home for a few months and I, I emailed Sergey and asked him if I could come out and apprentice with him. And he said, yes. So I've been here for almost three years at this point, working in guitars full time, uh, both for his brand and my brand. And I've been uh, privileged to work for a couple of other brands as well. So I spend pretty much all day working with guitars, either building them. I do a little bit of guitar uh, teaching as well, uh, both a little bit of the building and I have a number of students uh, studying guitar and violin with me as well uh, for the music side. So that's pretty much up to date with where, where, how that all happened. Awesome. I love it. Can you dive into the world of violin restoration for a minute here? Um, I, I could picture, I'm not exactly sure where, but lots of people have an old violin hanging on the wall. Uh, and maybe it doesn't have a bridge or it's got no strings. Is that the kind of stuff that someone is bringing to you and saying, hey, my grandpa used to play this and I want this to be playable again? Or walk me through that. Yeah, so I did I did a fair wide range of stuff in that. The first major project I took on was pretty much exactly what you said. It was one of my friends who he ended up becoming, he's the current national fiddle champion for Canada. He brought me a violin that came i believe from a thrift shop he said he found and it had it had a repair tag on the inside that was his like it had his family name or something on it so it was just an interesting coincidence that he picked it up and when i got it the top was in i think 13 pieces and so i had to take that that whole instrument piece it back together patch all of the damage um, reassemble it and make it playable and minimize the, uh, the visible effects of the damage. So I would do everything from a major restoration, which would be something like that, where I'm reassembling an instrument from pieces um, or, you know, pieces is kind of an extreme example, but that did happen a couple of times. But there were certainly cases where, you know, the, you'd end up with a crack in the top or the back. Um, or the neck would come off, something like that. I can, I was dealing with that on a regular-ish basis. Um, so I'd work on everything from from that kind of major project to something small where someone needed just a new bridge or something. They need to, to tune the instrument to make it work optimally. And I would do kind of the whole wide range. And I was privileged to work on stuff in a wide range of values as well, from, you know, a small, a cheap uh, Chinese made couple of hundred dollar 
instrument for a kid all the way up to, I worked on several university uh, level, like master's, bachelor's folks instruments um, in the, you know, tens of thousands of dollars range. Um, so it's really interesting to get to see the, you know, the differences in construction and, and what, what you're able to achieve at various price points. Amazing. Yeah. Did you, did you feel any kind of pressure when you were working on a really expensive instrument that you had to do it perfectly or something like that? There is absolutely pressure. Um, ironically, it mostly comes from the other people in the business where if someone knows that I, my hands have been on this instrument and it comes into their shop in the future, um, I need to uphold that. I know, I know that my work is always going to be good quality um, and it's going to last and I'm not going to do something that's super invasive and changes an instrument significantly at all. Um, but there is a certain just standard in the community where if I, <laughs> if I were to do something ir to an irreplaceable instrument, that would not, that would not be something I'd want to sit out there. So yeah, there's absolutely a pressure. And that's the other thing. The difference between restoration and building is in if, if I'm in an instrument from scratch, I'm trying to leave my, in a sense, my fingerprints, my, the, the effects of my hands on this instrument as it heads out into the world. Whereas if I'm doing restoration, I'm trying to sneak in and make sure it looks like the original builder's fingerprint is still the only one there. Wow. Amazing. I love that, uh, that difference that you just articulated there. Um, so let's, move on to your experience building then can you walk me through the entire process um from start to finish of you you said you're mostly building guitars right now is that correct that's right yeah right now i'm just building guitars uh because of the the folks i'm i'm working for and studying with um sergey has built between 12 and 1800 guitars both classical and steel string over his career and so while he's still here and while I'm working with him and while he's still alive, I want to glean as much information and uh, knowledge as I can from him. So I'm, I've focused down to just, just guitars and just acoustic guitars at this point. Eventually, I will expand back out. Um, my brother and I were running a banjo-making company for a while, so I'll head back, open back up into that, and maybe mandolins, and certainly I'll be playing in the violin field more. And I certainly see... Um, even just for a few friends building electric guitars. Um, but it's, yeah, right now I'm narrowed right back down to just the one thing to try and get as good as I can as short a time as possible. So if we, yeah, if we want to take it, what's the process? Normally for me, the process, and for most guitar makers, we'll start from either ordering wood or just picking wood out of a pile. Um, I'm really lucky here again to have access to another my, my mentor's wood stores. So I'm able to go in and pick out a piece of wood and say, can I use this? And often the answer is yes. And so it's, I don't have to, to go hunting and building up my supply to nearly the same degree as if I would have, if I were off on my own. Um, and that's where for most of us, it'll start is we go and pick the wood out of a pile, we find some pieces that go nicely together. So if we want to, if we want to blow blow that back out to the fullest extent of what the process is, we can. And that will go right back to, for me at this point, what I'm doing a lot of the time is I'm cutting my own wood from, now I will say at this point, I'm cutting from either large chunks, boards, or 
chunks of a tree. So um, I cut up some wood for back and sides and that came from a good sized chunk of a tree. Um, and so we're resawing that from the large pieces into thin slices. And for us, generally we're aiming at about four millimeters thick. So I'm cutting thin slices off and then I'm able to put that aside to use later in my career or now or sell it to another instrument maker. But we can take that one step further back too. And that would be, um, we can go out into the woods and find a tree and cut it down and then take it to a sawmill. So I've got some friends a couple of hours from here that have a sawmill. So I've been helping them run that, um, mainly they're building for, for structural, for buildings at this point but we're always keeping an eye out for if we find a tree that's going to be ideal for the guitars, then I'm going to get some chunks of that. Um, awesome. So we can. You, you mentioned um, last time we chatted about drying the wood. And I just wanted to ask, is it better to dry the wood before you cut it or after you cut it or does it matter? So it depends on what you're doing. In one sense, it doesn't matter all that much. Um, because we can dry wood, it dries very quickly when we've cut it into a four millimeter slice. But you have to take a lot of care with that because it can also, it likes to warp and what we call potato chip bend up in multiple directions at once if it's very wet and still thin. So you have to clamp it down with spacers so you've got airflow around it, but make sure it stays flat. Um, so you can do it there. We can also dry it. The old rule that comes from like old world carpenters was you want a year of drying per inch of thickness of a board. So if we've got a one inch board, one year of drying time. If we've got a four inch board, we want four years and so on. The instrument makers tend to take that out to a much larger extent, um, particularly the violin world loves it. If you can find wood that's you know cut 70, 80 years ago, they love that. Um, and sure, it's good. Absolutely. There's, there's no question about that. Um, but there's, from what we've seen in the experiments that I've run into, both in, in my building, my mentor's building, and the rest of the, the guitar community, um, you can build a very good guitar with wood that's only maybe cut three years ago or even less. Awesome. Cool. Sorry to interrupt that, but let's let's carry on with the guitar building process. Sure. So we've got... Uh, got trees that we've cut down um, and the important thing for guitars and violins both is the top is a softwood species generally so in Canada we have Sitka spruce um, and western red cedar would be our main west coast top varieties then as you move more into the Rockies and down south you get Engelmann spruce and then as you move out into the Carolinian forest and the eastern seaboard you get spruces red spruce and white spruce make very good guitars and they're known in it they would be known in the industry as an adirondack spruce named after the adirondack mountain range um, then for the back and sides hardwoods our main two that we have in canada that are popular would be walnut and maple um, then of course we use exotics as well we'll use mahoganies and rosewoods and uh, ebony's a whole lot of stuff um, but those would be kind of what we could find here so we've got that, we've got our pieces of wood. We go right from what we call a book match. So generally we want a back or a top of the guitar is made out of two pieces of wood glued on the center seam. 
And so we take a piece and we saw it down the middle and then we open it like the pages of a book and glue those together. So it's perfectly symmetrical side to side. You're looking at basically pieces of wood that were touching in the middle and then we've opened them up. So we glue that along the center seam. We make sure everything is to the right thickness. And then we put braces on the back and the top. And that allows us to give enough like engineered structural support to withstand the pull of the strings. And it also allows us to tune it. Now the pull of the strings is important because a classical set of guitar strings, so that's nylon strings for someone who doesn't know, a classical guitar has nylon or now carbon strings and a steel string guitar or an acoustic guitar has steel strings. Um, and the tension difference is fairly significant. Eight, about 80 pounds of tension or less for a set of nylon or carbon strings. And you can get easily up into the 100 to 140 to 160 pounds of pull range for a steel string guitar. So you've got a very, very different amount of tension that you're putting on the instrument. So you got to design with that in mind. So got the top and back braced. We bend the sides. And so the sides on an acoustic guitar are bent using heat and uh, a little bit of steam often. Um, and that just allows us to plastic, in a sense, plasticizes the wood and allows us to put it into compression. And then it sets in place. It's very cool. It's an amazing process to be able to just take a piece of wood and form it around to the shape you want. That's exactly how we do that. And then at that point, we're into assembly. So we'll glue the whole body together and we'll build the neck and we build, we build the neck with a dovetail joint often, not always, but often. And that's the traditional way to do it. And then it's the dovetail sits inside the guitar body and holds the neck on nice and firmly. And then once the neck is carved and put on, or we generally will finish the guitar and then we'll put the neck on. So we've got the guitar all closed everything's sanded. We've got all the decorative bits installed, sanded up to a nice high grit. And then we, then we finish the guitar. Um, and then after finish, then we assemble, we do any setup or, and tweaking that's needed to just make it play optimally. And then it's off for delivery to the music shop or the player, or just to be, uh, just to be played by me. Awesome. Uh, how many guitars have you made in your career up till this point? Yeah. So my personal, my personal serial numbers in three years for my own brand, I'm just on delivery for number 11. But if I include the instruments that I've been building for other folks, I'm in the 30 to 40 instruments range that I've actually completed and shipped for, for folks uh, myself. Um, I've had my hands on a lot more because I'll get to get to touch, touch other people's stuff and look at that while it's going on. But pretty much I would say 30 to 40 would be, a, a healthy estimate. Amazing. Have you ever had a a major failure of some kind, like something just didn't work out for you? And if you did, what did you learn from it? Major failure. I had one one that happened a few months ago, maybe six or eight months ago. We had some really nice mahogany that was, uh, it was figured, it had flames in it gorgeous stuff. And for some reason, when we were bending, bending the sides, unfortunately, we really don't know what happened, but one of the, one of the sides baked way too hard. It, for some reason, when we were bending it, 
it ended up getting very brittle and almost charcoal So we had to, unfortunately, abandon that set, which was really unfortunate. Um, and if I, if I learned anything from that one, I guess it would be that, you know, just we, you always got to double check to make sure no one tweaked any of the any of the settings on the tools you're using for sure um a funny one was on the second guitar I ever well second or third i ever built was a classical guitar and i glued the bridge on so a steel string guitar the strings actually go through the top and into the body classical guitar they are just tied onto the bridge so as i was stringing up this classical guitar it was finished and the bridge <laughs> I was tightening up the strings and the bridge came off and flew right past my head. Um, and that one, I, it, that one was, wasn't irrecoverable. I was able to just clean up everything and, and glue the bridge back on. But I learned very quickly on that one that you never use old glue. Um, I was using what's called hot hide glue for that. And so hot hide glue is literally it's animal gelatin um, that is graded for a particular strength. And that's the traditional glue that was used by instrument makers. And so I had a batch that I'd made up a few weeks earlier, which is way too long. And it was starting to go bad and it lost a lot of the strength that was inherent in a good hot high glue joint. Um, and so I was able to mix up a fresh batch, clean up those surfaces and glue it back on. And it's been fine since then. But uh, yeah, that was a <laughs> startling at the time. No doubt. If if I had to say I have a favorite type of failure, it would be it would be the type that's not irreversible, but you learn really quickly. Something like that, you know, where you that it was great because it happened at the close to the start of your career, right? So then for every guitar after this, you know, um, but it didn't it didn't wreck the instrument or whatever. So that's awesome. Yeah, can you definitely. can you tell me a little bit about some of the different materials um, beyond just the wood that you used. You touched on that just now talking about the glue and how you have to mix up a batch. Can you tell me about like what that involves and what some of those other things are? Yeah, the, the glue, we use a lot of different glues because there's certainly, there's been advances in glue technology that gives us the ability to pick something and and have a glue that's very ideal for that one of those advances would have been uh super glue when that was developed we would for, refer to it as it by its uh, scientific name like cyanoacrylate um and for us you know for some things to have the ability to use a glue that will is super super thin some of it's they've come up with formulations where it's thinner than water so let's say we've got a crack in something we're able to just wick that in and it will wick all the way into an open crack and seal that up for us. So that's really, that's a blessing to have access to that and allows that allows us to do things that were near impossible before. And a lot of that is in the world of inlay work and, and some very specialized repair work. Um, so we'll use stuff like that. We'll use epoxies for some things. We'll use, um, like I mentioned, the hot hide glue. And so the process for that one is kind of interesting. It comes in basically granules of powder. You just mix it off with water, let it hydrate. And then it's called hot hide glue because you have to use it hot. It's 
in a liquid form and we keep it, it's just under 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 134 to 136 degrees Fahrenheit. And so you keep it in a water bath and then you have to like dip your brush in, apply the glue to the surface and then clamp it within a short window of time. That window varies depending on the ambient temperature and the humidity in the shop, but you have to make sure the glue doesn't gel before you're able to stick the two pieces together because that will compromise the joint. Um, and that one's really nice. It's popular, especially in the violin world, because it's reversible. So if I have a top that's properly glued on a violin, I can go back in using some of the techniques that I learned, and I can take that top off in 30 to 60 seconds with no damage to the instrument, which is an amazing value for us to have to be able to do repair work. Yeah, that's incredible. I never even thought about that. So does that mean most guitars are pretty permanent? Once you put it all together, you're not taking a guitar apart? That's correct. Yeah, guitars were designed certainly with less repairability in mind. Um, one of the things that's contributed to that is the last type of glue that we would use often, which is called an aliphatic resin glue. It's yellow glue. It's like wood glue, carpenter's glue. Now we use not specialized kinds of it, but a, but some specific kinds that have um, a particular, we like the way they dry and we like the way they dry into a relatively hard surface. Hide glue is, is really special in that it dries glass hard. It is it perfectly hard. Whereas the aliphatic resin glues, the yellow glues, the white glues, they dry still a little bit rubbery. And so you can imagine if you're trying to build a system that transfers vibration as efficiently as possible, the really hard glue, like a hide glue, is better at transmitting little vibrations than something that's got a little tiny layer of rubber in between it. Um, and so that's one of the things. It's, a, it's less reversible, and we just we have to acknowledge that you have to use a lot more heat um, and uh, sometimes other chemicals in order to reverse a resin, an aliphatic resin glue bond. Whereas with high glue, you can actually reverse it entirely with water. Wow. The, magic, the magic with that is I can take glue in a joint that has come apart and it's, you know, a hundred years old. Most of the time I will add glue, but I wouldn't necessarily have to. I could just wet those two surfaces again and clamp them together and that would reactivate the glue and it works perfectly fine. Now, That's if incredible. I were, it is, absolutely. If I were to, let's say I had the same thing. Uh, well, let's, let's use the example of the bridge coming off the guitar. If it was glued with hide glue, I can just add more hide glue and stick it back together. If it was glued with a, with a yellow glue, an aliphatic resin glue, you actually have to clean off all of that old glue in order to put new glue on to glue it together because it doesn't, the hide glue is reactive with itself. So I, the new hide glue just reactivates the old hide glue and then it mixes together. Whereas the resin glues, they don't, they would provide layers and then that just provides more surface area for failure. Amazing. How hard is it for you to identify what type of, glue was used on an instrument that you're repairing it's it's not necessarily difficult depending on what it what kind of joint it is if it's like we were talking about when we join the top together that's very very difficult to identify because it's often 
it's a very tight joint and you can't really see any of the glue left in there. Um, but if it's something like, let's say it was the bridge, that's fairly identifiable. You can see, you know, marks and chunks of it left in there in a sense. And that's fairly easy to identify. If in doubt, I can always, if you put a little bit of water on a surface like that, the hide glue will swell up again and it remains clear. Whereas the yellow glue or the aliphatic resin glue, it turns white. You see a white surface almost immediately. It just kind of blooms out. So it's possible, but not always possible to identify what was there in the past. Cool. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how much creative license you have um, when you're building a guitar? You mentioned that you're, a lot of your projects are for other people or for the guy that you are working with and stuff like that. Um, tell me a little bit about like how much are you able to experiment or like leave your fingerprints on the piece that you're making? Yeah. So I would say absolutely. My fingerprints are on everything I touch just because it's almost inevitable. It's, it's not like I'm doing a really repeated mechanical work where, you know, if I was in a CNC shop and I just had to make, you know, 500 light switches out of metal, they're all going to be exactly the same. Even if I was just in a not normal machinist shop doing that, I could, I can make 500 identical light switches and you couldn't tell that it was me or like Joe down the row making them. It's no, no issue there. Um, wood is such a variable material. Like for example, let's say carving the braces on the inside of the instrument, we carve them to, to give the exact and like structural strength we need. But it's also a little bit of an art form. I'll, I'll carve the braces naturally a little bit differently than my mentor will and than anyone else who's learned from him will um, just because I'm doing it by hand and it's a kind of an aesthetic judgment in some senses. Um, but the actual amount of scope that I have for, for interpretation and artistic license um, on some of the instruments I'm building for other folks, I have basically that bracing is, is my room for artistic license. Um, but that's even still within a very narrow window because I know exactly the target I'm building for and we want consistency on those guitars. When I'm building for my mentor, um, I'm lucky because he's had a long career and he's had a lot of ideas come up too. So he's also handing me a lot of ideas saying, you know, I've wanted to try this experiment for a while. Why don't you do it for me? So I've got a guitar that I built for him. It's in a shop in Amsterdam right now um, for sale. And it's, uh, it's a unique design. And I'm currently the only person in the world who's doing them that way. Because even my mentor, he, he came up with a lot of the structure for it. But he's, he kind of let me loose and said, okay, figure out how to do it now. Um, which is a, a whole lot of fun. That's super cool. Can you? Is there a way to describe that? on here just vocally this the instrument how it's unique how yeah what makes it um totally unique like that yeah this one in particular um has what we call a double cutaway so rather than a normal symmetrical guitar has just the sides coming at 90 degrees around what we call the upper boat at the neck and that will come into the to the neck at either the 12th or the 14th fret on the fingerboard then you'll see what's what would be a normal cutaway a guitar and it's just got one side that's got a, a scoop out of it so that you can reach higher frets this one does that but to a much greater extreme 
Um, and so it comes around and it sweeps through in a, a almost an S shape at the neck joint. And so rather than the neck being joined at a 90 degree angle to the top or, or to the body, rather, the body's at a 45 degree angle where the neck is joined and it gives it a very flowing shape. Um, and it's, yeah, it, and it gives the person who's playing access right up to the very highest frets at the, at the sound hole. So it's, yeah, it's kind of fun. That's amazing. I love that. Um, can you talk just as we're drawing to a close here, can you give some recommendations? Are there other books you would recommend or something someone who's never thought about this or is just getting started? What could they do to get into the world of being a luthier? Is that what it's, that's what it's called, right? Yeah, that's what it's called. Luth- yeah, luthier, 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 luthier. Um, all correct pronunciations of the word. And it comes from the French, literally loot maker. Um, and so, yeah, there's a few, I, I got started originally with books, but that was before, that was before then I went and pursued uh, working with people, which I would highly recommend doing if you wanted to get into this world. I know when it was first mentioned to me, it seemed impossible, but it's, it's really good. I know that I've shaved years and probably like at least 15 years, maybe two decades off of the learning curve of my, my building because of who I've had a chance to work with and work up to their standards. Um, so if that's a possibility for you, go take a course, go work with somebody. It's um, just to be able to know that, you know, sometimes you can see if I'm, if someone's planing and they, they end up just their, their mechanics, they twist a little bit at the end and that's causing them problems. Things like that can be just a massive frustration and you can shave a lot of that off if you're, if you've got someone kind of who knows what they're doing, watching over your shoulder. That's not a possibility. It's good to be in community otherwise. So there's a few different groups. There's the GAL, which is out of Tacoma, Washington, Guild of American Luthiers. Um, And that's every three years, they have a convention that you can go to and meet a whole lot of other people building. Um, there's, if you're in, more interested in the repair side, there's a group online called the Luth Group. Um, and that's one of the best organizations I've run into so far. They're very sharing people. And that's what you'll find. If, if you've got a question, reach out, ask somebody, because most of us learned by other people sharing. And so almost everybody in the industry is very happy to share, share information. So I can, I can email a guy in, in California and say, you know, what was the biggest challenge that you found in, in building your business in this area? And he, and I know he would send me back an email that there's, you can reach out to any of us and that would be a, a good way to, to, you know, come up with some more, more options. Um, but that would be the biggest thing is, is find someone you can, you can learn from or work with just, just to push yourself further and hold yourself to a standard where, where it needs to be held to for sure. Amazing. Yeah. From my, my own limited exposure to the world of music and dance and stuff i've definitely seen that um like you the first point that you touched on um like finding people to work with you can you can sometimes meet some pretty big names in the community because it's such a small community right so the canadian fiddle world um or like step dance or guitar making, I imagine, all that kind of stuff. 
uh, like you mentioned for yourself, you you've worked under some pretty big names in the industry, right? Uh, no, you're you're exactly right. Um, I've been very lucky to work under some some great folks, and and this industry is interesting. It's not unique. Um, unfortunately, I think the unique thing is other industries where it's not the case. Um, but if I were so let's let's say playing in in pop music or something like that, it's very hard for me to meet the the top top people in that industry. Here, it's very open. I could go. I can pretty much send an email to anyone who would be considered that top uh, top of the industry, uh, master of their domain, and they are almost always wonderfully nice people and happy to share share what they've learned. So it's a, a real pleasure to be working with folks like that. It's really more a collaborative than competitive industry for sure. Amazing. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing what you know. My pleasure, Dorian. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And we will definitely chat again and keep in touch. All right. Sounds good. You have a great night. Awesome. You as well. I want to say a big thank you to Jackson for coming on the show. I also want to thank everyone who came here and listened to the show. Uh, you guys are awesome. You guys make this thing fun to do. This fiddle tune is actually Jackson himself playing with Xavier Leahy doing the guitar. Um, Jackson was kind enough to share this with me for the podcast. Um, if you guys were inspired at all by this podcast and make a video or anything, send it to me and I'd love to get it up on the Instagram page. Otherwise, you can leave a comment on Instagram, leave me a five stars on Spotify, whatever, it all helps. I will see you guys on the next one and until then, peace and love. Bye. Thank you very much. Have a very Merry Christmas. We'll see you again.